Radio Mano Papachango. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm coming to you from my hammock slung on the terrace of the apartment Casilda and I have here in Barcelona. So it's a pretty good place for me. Hope you're in a good place as well. This episode features my conversation with Zach Leary, who um, I think I met through Duncan Trussell. Last time I was in L.A., we uh, sat down and chatted for a while uh, on his podcast uh, which we talk about in the intro. So if you want to, uh, if you enjoy this conversation, and I hope you will, and you want to hear more, uh, you can check out our conversation on Zach's podcast, which I think is called It's All Happening or It's All Happening Now or something like that. Anyway, we talk about it in the co- course of our conversation, so you'll hear it. And I'll also put up a link to it, of course, on my page, chrisryanphd.com and tangentiallyspeaking.com. They both lead to the same place. Anyway, I'm just back uh, from the Alpujarras, which is a region south of Granada, Spain, where I was for a few days um, hanging out with uh, an old friend who's in the region who I haven't seen in in years. And um, interesting visit. Interesting visit with him. Uh a lot of really good stuff, you know. It's always good to see an old friend and check in and watch the passage of time and, you know, good things, bad things, just seeing it all happen. Um, but it's also strange to see how certain parts of people um, grow over time. And, and they're not necessarily the parts that you would want to see grow. Um you know, in his case, he seems to be developing, um, he seems to be nurturing a sense of his right to impose, um, which, uh, which, which is kind of creates for some discomfort because, you know, he doesn't like to bathe, for example. So he really fucking stinks, stinks feet armpits stinks and we're spending a lot of time in a rental car and the first day you know i i said mm, man dude you get a, you should take a shower you know little and i thought that was pretty direct really um but then uh i noticed he didn't take a shower and in the morning we're getting ready to go on another road trip and i i i said to him Look, dude, I'm not getting in the fucking car with you until you take a shower. And he said, are you serious? I said, fuck yeah, I'm serious. How long has it been since he took a shower? He said, I don't know, six, seven days. Six or seven days. Fucking guy stinks. I would say he stinks like a goat, but I've never smelled a goat that smelled that bad. (laughs) Anyway. Strange thing. But, you know, my feeling is that one of the central responsibilities of friendship is that you're you're willing to have that awkward conversation. 
you're willing to, you know, tell your friend, hey, man, there's something hanging out of your nose or you got something stuck in your teeth or dude, oh, you must you had a lot of garlic last night. You might want to brush your teeth before you, you know, go try to kiss that woman. You know, that's what a friend does. And no, it's not comfortable. And it's not the same thing as giving someone shit. You know, I it wasn't my preference to give the guy shit. It wasn't I didn't get any pleasure from it. But I don't want to smell that stench in the fucking car either. I'm not saying anything here that I didn't say to him, obviously. I wouldn't do that. I don't think he listens to the podcast, so he won't hear this. But if he does, it's no big deal. We, we've talked about it. Um, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's a strange thing when you feel like your right to stink outweighs other people's right not to have to smell you. I guess we all do that in some ways. Um, you know, we all sort of determine where our personal space ends and where the public space begins. Um, but I think cigarette smokers uh, maybe by necessity give themselves much more of a break on that front than uh, some of the rest of us do. I think there's something about being a cigarette smoker that makes you feel like other people should just shut up and enjoy your secondhand smoke. Um, not all not all cigarette smokers are like that, but the ones that aren't are so apologetic that it's kind of sad. But there, you know, there, it seems like that's one of the paths you can take as a as a tobacco addict. You can just sort of be like, "Hey, you know, it's no big deal. I don't know what you're uptight about." He actually said at one point we were talking about the overreaction of American culture to things. You know, like little kids, you know, giving each other kisses in elementary school are suddenly suspended for sexual abuse, and like all this overreaction of. Uh, American society to things and and he said yeah it's like like with the cigarettes and I said what do you mean and he said well you know now you can't smoke in trains you can't smoke in air just like you can't smoke in offices and it's like yeah dude you shouldn't be able to smoke that's that's not an example of overreaction at least not from my perspective that's that's the opposite that's a an example of underreaction for decades forcing everyone else to smell your fucking tobacco so anyway, it's just interesting to see how, how some aspects of things grow over time and of personalities grow over time and also how blind we are to some of our own biases. And I, believe me, I'm sure this applies to me as well as it does to anyone else, which is one of the reasons that psychotherapy can be very powerful and useful. I always used to think that it would be very, very difficult for psychotherapy to have any value um, because, you know, I'd have to find someone who was smarter than me and who could figure out all my own bullshit in ways that I hadn't been able to, despite, you know, having thought about it for years. But in fact, one of the most useful things about, or, or I guess one of the most powerful things about psychotherapy is just the fact that the other person is looking at you from outside. Just that, just the change in perspective opens up so much possibility uh, for understanding. 
that uh, they don't necessarily have to be smarter than you or to have spent a lot of time thinking about you and all your little quirks and interesting biographical details. The fact that they don't know you, in fact, is uh, one of the most valuable things about a psychotherapist. So if you've got some extra money and you're thinking about it, I, I think psychotherapy is great. It's like, it's like doing a graduate seminar on you, on yourself. It can be very narcissistic, but uh, also very useful. Along those lines, it's interesting to think about narrative and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and how conveniently they skirt things, explanations that might uh, make us uncomfortable in favor of explanations that seem to promote our comfort, but actually interfere with our ability to, um, to deal with what's really happening. Uh, for example, my buddy's got, uh, severe intestinal issues that require him to fart and burp and take shits that go for hours. And, uh, he attributes this to some sort of parasitic infection that he picked up a few years ago. Um, although doctors haven't really, uh, found evidence of it or some have and some haven't, and it was all pretty convoluted, but here's the thing. The guy smokes constantly, constantly smoking and drinks a lot of coffee on an empty stomach. And those are two things that are known high level intestinal irritants. So he's, but he, he ignores that because he is addicted to smoking and coffee and uh, so he ignores that but he has this other explanation and so he's you know can't have sugar or white flour or this or that all these other things um, but he's ignoring two major causes of intestinal uh, dismay and suffering um, because he likes them and so he's come up with other explanations and you know I wonder how often we do that in our lives we Ignore the obvious um, because the obvious is something we're familiar with and and that gives us a little comfort, uh, despite the fact that it's completely fucking us up. As always, a special thanks to everybody who supports the podcast financially. Uh, one of the ways you can do that is through fundwhatyoulove.com. Uh, I've mentioned that many times. I've also just recently set up a sponsorship account on patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com just search christopher ryan or tangentially speaking and you'll find it uh, some people were a little um, uncomfortable about giving their credit card details to a small site like fund what you love so patreon is a much bigger site uh, used by millions of people so presumably um, i don't know more difficult to hack, although I think they have been hacked. I don't know. Uh, anyway, and the other way you can do it is by buying shit on Amazon.com and going through my my um, Amazon affiliate link at ChrisRyanPhD.com. Click on that, bookmark your landing page on Amazon, and then use that when you buy stuff on Amazon. And we will get roughly 8% of whatever you spend there. doesn't increase your prices at all, but it takes right out of Amazon's profit margin. 
Hey, I guess they can afford it. So let's see. Here's some cool things that people are buying. Somebody went all in for the Fuji 2904-T70 Mini Mite Spray System. They got a six-foot flexible whip hose. Uh, they got uh, the spray system itself, and they got a couple of turbine filters. Um, and that cost them close to 800 bucks, of which we got about 60 for the podcast. Thank you. I don't know what that is. I'm guessing that might be someone with a grow operation going on. So anyone out there who's got a commercial marijuana growing operation and you're ordering all that crap, if you're ordering it through Amazon and you're not giving that affiliate money to somebody, be it me or Duncan or some other podcaster um, trying to make the rent, you're just throwing the money away. You're leaving it for Amazon. So uh, it costs you nothing, and it's a really nice way to help us out. Let's see. What are uh, some other things here? Uh, somebody bought a hammer drill, a DeWalt. That's a good product. Uh, that got 23 bucks for the podcast. I'm just scrolling through the report here. Um, sports and outdoor stuff. A 3D sleep mask. What the hell is a 3D sleep mask? Your eyes are closed. Why do you need 3D? I don't know. Anyway, it cost them $9.95. We got 80 cents out of that. Thank you. The little ones add up. Don't think it's just the big ones that we care about. Somebody got some Vivo Barefoot Men's Stealth Running Shoes. Size 43, 10 and a half U.S. I think I might know who that is. Thanks, uh, Liam, if that's you. <laughs> He's a guy who wears those shoes. And his feet stink. I got to say, Liam, you're another guy with stinky feet. And he's proud of it. He refuses to wash. He says, those are good. That's the microbiome. I don't want to mess with that. All right, whatever. Good guy, stinky feet. Uh, Keen, utility, men's, Atlanta, cool, stow, cool steel toe work shoes. Shiitake, I guess that's the color. Size 10, thank you. 950, came to the podcast. Very cool. Uh, here's a whole section on pet supplies. Somebody's got a freshwater master test kit. I guess that's an aquarium. I've never had an aquarium. It always seemed like a cool thing to have, you know, have all those beautiful fish swimming around in your living room. I've just never, uh, I guess I'm not responsible enough to have an aquarium. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, what else do we have here? Oh, somebody bought a quite expensive tower paddle boards, iRace inflatable SUP package. Sup package, uh, seven hundred and some dollars. So we got sixty bucks to the podcast. Thank you. See that kind of thing. If you just buy it, there's sixty bucks you're just leaving in the street, um, and uh, it's really nice to, that you can do this. I don't know when Amazon's going to cancel this program. I I can't imagine they're going to run it forever. But I guess once they take over the world, then they'll cancel the program. But until then. Let's live while the living's good, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, auto supplies. I didn't know that you could buy auto supplies through Amazon, but someone else knew. They bought their automatic transmission fluid filler kit for VW, Audi, Porsche, Mercedes-Benz. So it's that German transmission fluid. Thank you for that. All right, let's see. What's one more? I'm scrolling up. Let's see one more. Uh, these, I mean, a lot of these are 40 cents, 20 cents, 12 cents. 
And then every once in a while, you'll see a big one. Here's one, $38. A body cushion TM four-piece set black. Don't know what that is. Don't even know what section that is yet. Let's see. What section is this? Oh, wow. This is a big section. Oh, this is all the health supplies, health and personal care. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Take care of your health and your person. Care for your person. Okay. Let's see. One more. I'm scrolling up, scrolling up. Oh, someone. Oh, here's one. Now, here's a good thing to know. When you return something that you bought through this system, then uh, they take back their money. So here's 25 bucks going back because somebody returned their Asus GL551 gaming laptop, it says. It does say laptop. Uh, maybe that's why they returned it because they wanted a laptop, not a laptop. Um, yeah. All right. And I'm all, let me go up to the top. This is this month's report. Uh, oh, here's a lot of little stuff. Oh, these are the instant videos. So people who watch instant videos, um, we get a little cut of that too. Wow. Pups save Alex's mini patrol. Pups save a lost tooth. I guess these are kids cartoons. Wow. We've got kids who are supporting the podcast. Thanks, kids. All right. So anyway, let's get to the podcast. I'll do another uh, ranting out my ass Roma podcast because there have been some interesting letters and emails and things that have been coming my way recently. So I'll do one of those very soon. I'll spare you that at the moment. Uh, I'm going to play a song before we get to Zach. I'm going to play you out with a song called Versus the World by a guy named Brett Newski, who uh, ran into Carsey Blanton while touring in somewhere, Germany, I think he said. I'm not sure. Anyway, he sent me an email that he's been listening to the podcast. He's a fan. He's a, uh, a writer, a singer, a songwriter. And so he sent me this song. It's a pretty cool song called Versus the World. And um, Brett's an interesting guy. He uh, sort of fits into the demographic of the people who, you know, are on this podcast involved with it in one way or another. Uh, he's lived all over the world. While living in Saigon in 2010, Brett landed a job writing music jingles for national television campaigns, most notably a line of tampon ads placed in movie theaters across Vietnam. The wild success of these campaigns made him, quote, the vagina king of Vietnam, according to his creative director. The, uh, the vagina king uh, left Saigon after two years, playing a thousand shows across Europe, South Africa, Asia, Australia, and the U.S. Um, so this is Brett Nevsky. You can check out more of his stuff at Brett Nevsky, B-R-E-T-T-N-E-W-S-K-I, Dot com, and uh, I guess you can find all this stuff there. I'll put a link on my webpage. If you forget and you want to check them out later, just go to my site and you'll see brettnewski.com. Anyway, this is called Versus the World. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Zach Leary, and I will catch you soon. Bye. <laughs> Your shit into a box Turning cough your demons out Running out of time To fuck around 
It's not the doing that gets tricky, it's the approval to go ahead. You can be the bleeding candle, you can strike the fiery match. I'll please break free, please break free, because I need somebody to go inverse the world with me. will not find me and I will not find it like the singers who cannot sing a lick everybody's sitting on some grand old master plan waiting for lightning to strike and make it all happen I'll please break free please break free because I need somebody on the lookout when I'm Jimmy sitting here uh, the sun has gone it's not down I guess on the beach there's still sun but where we're sitting the sun has disappeared which means if you hear our teeth chattering that's why <laughs> I'm here with uh, with Zach Leary who I met uh, what three weeks ago or something yeah, about three weeks ago I was on your right. podcast so right. if people want to uh, hear more of this sort of conversation they can go to it's, it's all happening all show, happening. show. Yeah. okay and who says it doesn't get cold in Los Angeles here it is. We're cold in L.A. Yeah, but <laughs> anybody listening to this, like in any other part of the country, right, is like, scoffing that's right. in our general direction. <laughs> New York, we're under three feet of snow right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was just, well, I was, uh, I was looking at the computer before you showed up, and I saw 
that some guy in New York had placed a Craigslist ad or an Airbnb ad, 250 bucks a night for an igloo. <laughs> <laughs> the craziest thing, he'll probably get it too. Yeah, That's right. The thing. Well, there, there are these luxury igloos in like Norway or somewhere. Have you seen those? Yeah, I have, and they make them into like they've made them into hotels. Yeah, right. Yeah, really nice. Really nice. Yeah, really. I'd be up for that. I'd be up for that for sure. Do you know about this guy, the Iceman Wim Hof? I do. I do know about Wim Hof. I mean, mainly through um, I found out about him with Rogan's show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a what interesting dude. Very interesting dude, and I really like what he's doing. But the only thing where I just seem to have a little rub with it is I don't think that's learned. He claims you can learn it. Yeah, like well, he breathing. says he teaches people and takes them up on that mountain and, you know, wow. there's no clothes on and stuff. And they can do it, huh? Yeah. I, I just feel well, that, like... I mean, that is the key, because if right. he's just an, an anomaly, then it doesn't prove anything. But if, if it is something that you can teach and learn, then... I mean, it, it opens up a whole world of interesting questions mm-hmm. for me, because... Um, if you can train your body to interact with temperature in different ways, as right. he seems to be arguing, then that calls into question the whole notion of comfort. Right. What is comfort? Because what we're doing is trying to, you know, the Western, and we could, we could apply this to medicine and relationships and so many different things. Yeah. We're trying to adjust our world to our comfort. Whereas what he's saying, and, and I think it's applicable to hunter-gatherers, is saying, no, no, we can adjust ourselves to be comfortable in things as they are. Right. We've narrowed our parameters to a very specific set of comfort. Yeah. And, um, and uh, we shoot ourselves in the foot with it. Yeah, we, we do. And I know this discussion, I've had this discussion recently with somebody around food. Right. It's like our definition of what we think hungry is. Mm, yeah, you, it's just that it's insane. The right. Western definition. It's like, oh, we get a little peckish, and yeah. oh, got to go eat. Poor us. Yeah. You know, the real idea of what hunger really, really means, and you can yeah. control your diet through this this change of right. perception. Right. And it's that. a it's a really good example too, yeah. because it extends to the self destructive element of it. The one thing that has ever been scientifically shown to extend lifespan is reduced calorie Reduced consumption of food. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But with back to the temperature thing, though, I don't know. I feel like I have such a the block already inside of my head. It's already so extreme that I'm just like, I'm not so sure I could learn Wim Hof's thing in my lifetime. I don't know. I'm not even willing to try is the Dude, thing. Yeah, I, I think that's, <laughs> that's where I part. am. Yeah. That's right. Every morning when I go to the shower, I'm like, well, maybe I should just do it cold, like Wim Hof. And then, no. Well, I've done these ice baths. And, like Tim Ferriss got me, got me on the ice bath uh-huh. trip because it does help with anxiety and depression. And, uh, and it really does work. Right. I can't take it for as long as he does. Yeah. But the little plunge, the 30 to 60 second plunge in the ice bath, right. it does. It works. It, sure. It shock, shocks your synapses. Well, jumping into a stream or a lake, you yep. know, or ocean, any of that stuff, you feel great the next, you know, the next six hours. You do. It's fantastic, yeah. right? But what women's doing, I mean, wow, amazing. Hardcore stuff. Yeah, I, I talked to his son about having him on the podcast, and, and they're up for it. Um, but, you know, they, we weren't in the same place at the same time. And I really don't want to do that on Skype. I want to. I want to meet him because I, yeah. I, I think he's not only is he very interesting, but I think he's a cool guy and possibly someone who will go down in history. I think so too. Yeah, and I, from what I understand, his presence is quite 
yeah yeah it's pretty magnetic you're like whoa this guy's on to something i don't yeah. know what it is but yeah. he's on to something yeah he's definitely he's he's a wild man so yeah. anyway so the other connection we have is uh duncan you and duncan seem to hang out a lot are you guys buddies or are you just do, doing a lot of podcasts together we're, uh, all of the above yeah oh, I mean, good. duncan's uh, kind of a new friend we're actually doing something really cool tomorrow we're um the the co-guests on this virtual reality talk show oh nice this thing called um called Gunter's Universe and this guy I guess has you know as many people as the CPU will take into this VR land go and watch his talk show in virtual reality oh, really? through Oculus ah. and if you don't if you're shut out you can just watch it on a computer screen and just sort of watch what's going on and like 30,000 people tune into it wow. I guess that's quite a thing but it yeah, streams live it streams live so uh, yeah I'm uh, Dr. and I are getting together tomorrow and we're both going to be uh, put on the headsets and go in <laughs> <laughs> Duncan, I don't know if it's his most recent set, but at some point I was visiting his place and I put on his headset and you know looked at whatever the hell it was, and houses moving around and stuff, and I just I just got nauseated. And, yeah, yeah, you do get pretty dizzy pr pretty quickly, which is that's the part that's going to be a little disorienting to me. It's like I like virtual reality, and I, it's you know for many many reasons, but whether or not I'm going to be able to keep my cognitive sort of you know linear cognitive speech pattern going right i'm interested to see like how long have you worn the the headset in the past oh i guess the longest i've only had it on is like you know 15 minutes just like jerk off time yeah right <laughs> <laughs> so 90 minutes inside of this thing i don't know what's gonna happen. i'm gonna puke or come i don't right. know what's gonna happen One of, or both at the <laughs> same time and it wouldn't be the first yeah. time so i love duncan duncan's great yeah duncan's yeah he's, well give him uh you know give him a, a fucking slap from me because he hasn't responded to my emails in about three weeks now oh okay and i was hanging yesterday i was with aubrey and Aubrey's like yeah i'm doing duncan's podcast tomorrow and then i'm like yeah tell john duncan i said fuck you and now you're the next <laughs> guy now i know why he's not answering my emails he's busy with all you other guys i'm having duncan withdrawal syndrome duncan sometimes can be shifty and getting in touch with him i have to like if he doesn't respond to my email i text him uh yeah see yeah. i always I, I guess i should resort to the text but and whether or not i find it, he finds it annoying or not he hasn't said so anyway yeah. it's funny though because i've actually um it's funny you say that because i've asked him to uh get me in touch i wanted i wanted the aubrey I wanted to meet Aubrey. Oh, uh, right. And he never responded to me on that. Yeah. So, there Dun we go. Duncan is not, he's not the guy to call with your one call from the police station. <laughs> you don't, it's a long shot. That, so anybody listening, if you go to jail, do not call Duncan Trussell. Don't call Duncan. Yeah. He's a wonderful guy. You know, definitely we love our Duncan, but yeah. Could I call you? Uh, you can, but I'd probably be like so far away I right. wouldn't be able to help. That's yeah, right. okay. yeah, I'm leaving for Thailand in uh, in a few days, so unless unless you get busted tonight, okay, you know, well, I hopefully won't get busted ever again. I mean, it's yeah. happened to me before, but oh yeah, let's not let's not do that again. <laughs> have you done Have you done time or just like uh, overnight waiting for the magistrate kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I did um, a, a little bit of time. The most time I ever did was 42 days. Well, that's that's. Enough to stay. know. Yeah. Yeah. It was enough to know I never, ever have to go back again. Yeah. yeah it was difficult. I did four days. Okay. In a medium security prison. Mm. So it was, you know, I got the, the hardcore experience in terms of watching those doors close and feeling the hopelessness of it. Yeah. Um, but it was just four days. So I got off really easy on that. 
42 days is a whole different situation. Yeah, it's, it's long enough to sort of get adjusted to it. You know, as a sort of your body clock and your dietary stuff, and then yeah, right. the politics surrounding it. Right. And then you're sort of like, okay, this is going to end. When's this going to end? How is this going to end? Do, is it something you're willing to talk about? Or yeah, yeah, sure. Go, go yeah, I mean, my um, part of my my story is I'm I'm a, I'm a recovering heroin addict. Oh, okay. And um, about gosh, 17, 18 years ago now, I got in a lot of that was where the path took me into a lot right. of legal trouble and right. just around, I mean, nothing exciting, nothing sexy, just uh, around the day-to-day -day life of being a heroin addict in Los Angeles, you know, right. broke and penniless and just kind of wandering the streets and kind of doing that. And uh, yeah, and it landed me in the Los Angeles County Jail. It'll um, do that. It'll do that for kind of petty stuff that just kind of compounded, you know, after a while. And then I had so many little infractions of petty things that when I got there they were like oh my gosh this all adds up to equal yeah right and then they let me out and I went to rehab and haven't had to deal with that since but so what do you think about the disease model of addiction is that something you you're down with or how do you feel about that it is it is something I'm down with um, I don't think, however, I have a big asterisk around it. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all model. Mm. For me, looking at, the, at the, the problem holistically as a disease model, it's worked for me because I've, uh, I've, I've suffered from it, and, or I don't want to say suffered, but I've felt the wraths of it in other areas of my life that have been very similar to drug addiction, mm. other little manifestations of it. So that model has worked for me, and it's been a very nice, neat, tidy wrapper that's been able to have me address my behavior, the, the roots of my behavior, which haven't seen me go down those roads mm. again. Now, th this is for me. This is for many addicts I know, but I don't believe I'm not a zealot in the sense that, like, you know, people come to me with drug addiction stuff all the time, and I'm not like, oh, you need to go to an NA meeting. That's the only way. You're going to die otherwise. Right. Many possibilities these yeah. days, whether it's spirituality to Ibogaine to... I was going to ask whatever. if you were familiar with the Ibogaine treatment. I am familiar with it, and it's great, and I know that a lot of the results are they're promising, hmm. and more and more so. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think we're going to... On our way to Thailand, we're going to go down to Mexico and check out uh, one of the clinics oh, in cool. Tijuana. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I've never experienced ibogaine myself, um, but from what I hear, it, I can see how it would have a sort of a reset effect. You know. Yeah. And apparently, I mean, you've probably spoken to more people than I have, but from the people I've spoken to who've been through it, they say it's not. It's not even that there's a negative association with heroin afterwards. It's just the the appetite's gone. That's what I've heard. I mean, I, I haven't done it, but the, um, not only it's twofold from what I understand. Yes, you sort of reset your relationship to uh, the opiate like molecule in and of itself, but also you're, you can lose the physical cravings, right. which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I know uh, in the latter parts of my addiction, it's... Um, if there was a pill like I could have taken to erase the appetite, you know, I, I would have taken sure. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it, very promising and I can't wait to see where it goes. I, uh, I tried heroin 
twice, I guess, in Thailand. In Thailand. Well, yeah. That's a good place to do it. Yeah. Well, yes or no. Um, I was in Chiang Mai. Okay. This is a long time ago. Um, in fact, I could tell you the day with a little Googling, I could find out exactly when it was because Mike Tyson was fighting James Bone Crusher Smith. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> and I was in Chiang Mai, and I decided I was going to get up early to watch the fight. It, it was on at like 7 in the morning or something in Thailand. And uh, there was this one cafe that, that was going to open early and show the fight. And I went to this cafe, and it was just me and these two uh, British dudes. And uh, the British guys were so funny. They were friends, you know, from back home. And the one dude was an actor. And he had come to Thailand to, uh, he, he was going to talk his way onto the set and get a role in um, Good Morning Vietnam, which was being filmed at that point, the Robin Williams movie. <coughs> but, you know, as, as often happens with junkies, that was his cover story. But the real reason he was there was because the heroine was great. And he, they were both upper class, like foppish British, you know, goofballs. Okay. And um, and then his buddy, who was the son of a very famous British author, whose books I had read, I won't say his name, but um, I, I like knew his father's work quite well. And so he had come ostensibly to save his friend because uh, he knew what was going on. And, but then he, st he was like, oh, this, this is great stuff. And so he stayed. And they had been there a couple months. And they were just, it was just, they were having such a good time, just laughing and goofing around all the time. And, um, but then, you know, I, as I got to know them a little better, this, the thing that really st stuck in my memory is that they had recently, let's see, his friend who had come second had had contacted the first friend's parents mm -hmm. and said that he had been kidnapped and that he needed to pay a ransom to get their son out. Oh, wow. When what had really happened is they'd blown all their money on drugs and they needed more money. And Did the parents cough up the money? I think so, yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And I know someone else who who did exactly that same plot on his parents. His mother is a friend of mine, and it was like, oh, I heard of that before. Oh wow! <laughs> oh, kid got kidnapped in Costa Rica. Sure, he did. Anyway, so uh, so they were they were a lot of fun, but there was some nefarious shit going on. And I was that night. I ended up hanging out with them, and they were smoking it on the foil. On the you foil, know? yeah, sure. Is that Chase the Dragon? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, exactly. I just thought that Steely Dan. Steely song. Steely yeah. Dan song. Yeah. Right. And uh, so they asked me if I wanted to try it. And my, my sort of philosophy when I was traveling was, you know, I'd, I would try pretty much anything as long as I was with someone who knew what they were doing. Right. You know, okay. and it's good uh, philosophy for life. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I don't have, a, you know, if there's such a thing as an addictive personality structure, I don't have it. You know, I'm lazy. That's my addiction. So if there's, okay. like, beer, I'll drink it, you know. But I don't, like, it's not like I've had a little, I need to have more, you know. Okay. Um, so anyway, they, they, you know, made a line for me, and I smoked it. And, and they were just, like, so relaxed and chilling. And I was sitting there, and I started getting really agitated. And I went to the bathroom, and I puked like crazy. And then I came back, and they were like, oh, yeah, sorry, we forgot to tell you. You puked the first time. That's normal. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And then I looked, I was wearing jeans, and I looked at my jeans and they were soaking wet because I had sweat through my jeans. Oh, wow. And I was just running with sweat. Huh. So I thought, okay, this, I just need to chill. This isn't, this isn't feeling right. So see you guys later. I went back to my little guest house room and um, I remember I was lying in the bed watching the fan, you know, the ceiling fan spin. And I thought I was really clever because I had some weed with me and I had figured out, I broke up the weed in three equal sized packets and taped them to the top of each blade of the fan <laughs> so that it wouldn't, you know, swing. Would be equal. Yeah. yeah. Right. And like, you know, if cop, <laughs> cop, cops come in, they're not going to check the top of the fan, right? It's a perfect right. place. So I was lying there feeling self-satisfied about that. and. I thought, I'll just sleep it off, I'll, you know, I'll be fine in the morning. And I started drifting to sleep and, uh, and then some voice in my head just said, don't sleep, stay awake, don't sleep, you'll die. Oh. And I thought, well, that's, I don't know. The, extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I stayed awake and, and, uh, and then I tried it again and, and again it was too much a okay. couple of days later. Then years later, and, and you can tell me maybe this is bullshit, but years later I was in San Francisco and I got to be friends with a guy who had uh, used heroin for years and I told him that story. And he said, well, how big was the line? And I showed him and he said, you were in Chiang Mai. I said, yeah. He said, man, that was an overdose. They oh, gave yeah. you way too much. Huh. Yeah, that might have been okay if you had been in London or San Francisco, but that was pure shit you're doing in Chiang Mai. Sure. And uh, he said, if you had gone to sleep, you might have died because that's how it happens. Because oh, your okay. auto, you know, your your body stops doing it, auto, making you breathe and your heartbeat automatically. Okay. You need to be awake. All right. So you purge, and that's why you sweat so much. And stuff. I guess. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about heroin is really. Um, the, I mean, it's different with different drugs, and it does become, come down to a, a bio, you know a biochemical thing and the way your own physiology reacts to the certain chemical compound. And the odds are much greater with opiates. And they say it is said that 25% of the world's population is hardwired to be an opiate addict. Hmm. And this applies to heroin or what we're seeing now with Oxycontin, the Oxy problem in America, right. which is absolutely dreadful. Um, and, you know, those are pretty big odds. Yeah. You know, one out of four people, you know, after yeah. like, you know, where it's the other 75% of the people, you know, you'll take it two or three days in a row. And then on the third or fourth day, you'll be like, ah, I feel shitty, but the impulse won't be to take more. Right. So for 25% of the people, the impulse will be, oh, shit, I need more. Those are pretty big odds. Do you think that that's a purely genetic chemical yes, issue? I you do. do. I do. Okay. I think it's, it's hardwired. Have you, do you know about Rat Park? I don't. Bruce Alexander's research? It's really interesting. He, he was looking at a lot of this research in the, I guess it was the early to mid-70s that was mm. saying, you know, if you smoke crack once, you're going to be addicted forever. Mm. And, you know, or maybe it was the 80s if it was crack. But right. anyway, um, and heroin and cocaine and, you know, various things. Um, and... The the research was with the rats, you know, where they'd have the rat and they'd give it like offer it one thing with food and the other thing with the drug and they'd keep oh, yeah, going sure. to the drug and then they'd starve to death or right. you know they'd give up sex. Like, so there are all these different options and they always went for the drug, right? right? So 
he was looking at that and he said, well, okay, but all this research is, is you know, rats, which are really social animals, isolated in, the, in, the, in these laboratory cages, which is a horrible place for a rat to be. Sure. So he built this big enclosure that he called Rat Park, which where he had dozens of rats in there, all different sexes, so they could fuck, and they had babies, and there were balls and tunnels, and all sorts of shit for them to do. Right. And then he performed the same uh, testing procedures. And without exception, the rats would try the drug once or twice yep. and then lose interest in it. Yeah. So his conclusion was that, you know, and this, this is sort of argues against the disease model, because he's saying, like, yeah, if people have meaning in their lives and, you know, fulfilling relationships, connection, connection yep. community, and so on, then the drugs aren't so interesting. Yeah, I I, I I do get that. And there's also this TED Talk going around recently. I kind of forgot the guy's name who just wrote a book on this. Um, oh, Harari or Jonah Hariri or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Chasing the something. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it's all about connection. Yeah. And it's about how addiction is really just the absence of connection. Right. And, you know, first of all, I don't agree with that. Because I, I don't disagree with that because the 12-step model, uh, essentially what it's trying to do is restore connection. Great community. Yeah, great, great community. community. Yeah, and yeah. also whatever, you know, a god of your understanding, whatever right. that means for you. Right. And try to restore connection and, you know, and, and have you not be alone. You don't have to be alone anymore. You have other people to go through it with. And that is all true, except, I mean, look, man, I have a very, very full life right now. I don't have any absence of connection, that's for sure. But if I take heroin right now in front of you, there is a chemical reaction that fires in my brain that behaves differently than yeah. probably it does for you. It just does. All yeah. the meditation, yoga, what guru shit, whatever it is, it just behaves differently and I'm gonna yeah. want more. Well, and you know, the, you know, you know I, I'm very partial to the Rat Park interpretation of things because mm -hmm. I, I bitch a lot about the modern world and so I want to sure. blame everything on it. Yep. Um, but there's no question that different mm -hmm. drugs feel different to different people. Yes. Like, you know, like my wife, for example, she's a psychiatrist. She never drank, doesn't like alcohol. She takes one sip of wine and she feels bad for days. Okay. She's super <laughs> sensitive. But the first time she got high with marijuana, she was like, oh, well, they, I get it. This, this is I like. Yes, yeah. I get it. And so she uses it in a medicinal way and, you know, for relaxation and all sorts of stuff. Fantastic. She loves it. But nothing else that she's ever tried, you know, and I've, you know, I've, I've tried to corrupt her in every way possible. Yeah. And it's just, uh, you know, so she's not against drugs. She's a fucking doctor. You know, she's she's down with all sorts of interactions. But some things work, some things don't. I'm yeah. like with me, I've got friends who they feel normal when they do coke. You know, it's like then they feel comfortable, they feel relaxed, they feel. I do coke, I feel nervous, <laughs> agitated, poisoned. Doesn't bring the best in you, does no, it? No, it's yeah. like, why am I doing it? The only benefit I've ever seen from coke, and this is the most dubious of benefits, is that I can drink all night. <laughs> you know, it's like, what is the value of that? So, yeah, no, I don't get coke. And heroin just made me nervous as fuck. And whether that was dose-dependent or, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but, it's interesting. You know, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm not anti-drug and, and by any stretch, obviously. You know, I'm very pro-psychedelic. I'm pro-consciousness expansion. I'm pro, you know, they're great doorways. They're great portals into, mm. you know, 
different relationships to the, to the physical world and to, yeah. the spiritual, to the spirit world as well. Um, yeah, my problem is pretty specific, and right. I just choose to keep it that way. So yep. your, your stepdad was yep. Timothy Leary, yep. right? At, how old were you? I, I should have like read up on this, you know, before you came over. But yeah. I'm notoriously ill prepared. <laughs> I was four. You were four. Okay, yeah. so you spent most of your life in his. Yeah, he's company. my he's my dad. I don't okay. even say stepdad. Yeah. Neither did he really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, I didn't want to yeah. assume anything. And so how? I mean, because this whole conversation we're having about you know drugs and the benefits and the dangers, and yeah. he's sort of a central figure historically in that conversation. Yeah, he is. He, he is indeed, and he, I mean, yeah, I mean, his relationship was, was multi-tiered for sure. I, I mean, obviously, he's most famous for psychedelic research from the, from the early yeah. 60s and, yeah. and sort of making his way through that. Um, and at that time, you know, we have to remember now in the year 2016 that context is everything. Yeah. You know, the relationship with what, how people thought of LSD or psilocybin yeah. in 1961 yeah. was very different than that. It was, hey, it was were, a legal, scientific legal. tool. Yes, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. so. Psychotomimetic. Yeah, exactly. It was a psychotropic agent, so there was no way to really, it wasn't really called, you know, drugs. There was no yeah. counterculture yet that kind of, you know, was a tangential sort of offshoot from yeah. the, you know, so. Did you ever meet Oscar Janiger? Yeah, sure. Did you? Yeah, yeah. He was here in L.A. He was around here. You bet. Oh, really? Was he in Venice? Um, No, he was in the Palisades, Uh, but close. Yeah. Yeah. He was great. Yeah, Yeah. I'll bet. I I saw some of those paintings. For people who don't know who we're talking about, he was a psychiatrist, I believe. A psychiatrist, yes. Who used LSD with um, some of his patients. Yep who weren't suffering from anything they just wanted to explore and it, as you said it was completely legal and uh he had some very prominent people it was rock hudson and yeah that's right rita moreno and jack nicholson various people took acid in his uh his office yeah and then there were all these paintings he had artists who came in and and would do a painting and then take acid and like redo the painting and redo or the painting yeah Oh, and man. a lot of them portraits. Yeah. Yeah, like auto portraits, self portraits. Unbelievable. Yeah. I've seen some of them, I don't know, online or in a book or something, but they were amazing. Yeah, Oz was great. And then it sort of got to a point to where I, he couldn't really safely do that anymore. Right. I think he still quietly was doing it. Right. But then he started getting into, um, kind of, I forget the name of the chemical, but um, truth serum sessions. Huh. Um, Sodium, I've kind of forgot what it's called. Pentanol, pentanol, sodium pentanol, yeah. yes. And he was doing those sessions for like the last decade of his life. And I know many people who did it, I never did, but hmm. he, he would kind of provide a safe space for, for that to go down. Yeah. I, I was at a, an ecstasy conference in Israel, oh. 99, that was sponsored by MAPS. Okay. And um, it was very interesting. It was everybody in the world who was working with ecstasy. Hmm. Uh, Sasha Shulgin was there. Yeah. Have you met him? Sure. Yeah. 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 He died recently. Yeah. Rick uh, Doblin, of course. Yeah. Rick yeah. was there. Yeah. Um, yeah there were all, all sorts of people there. But um, what was striking about it was there were all these um, high-level officers in the Israeli army, and it turned out that the Israeli military had uh, partially sponsored the the conference. Wow. Yeah. And the reason that the public reason was that they were interested in the potential use of MDMA in treating PTSD in vets. 
which ahead is, of their time. Yeah, which yeah. is great. I mean, it's definitely very useful. That was uh, Zach Zipper. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You don't, you don't hear it. You don't have the headphones. I should, I should get a second set of headphones. Um, but, uh, what was it? Oh, oh, yeah. So I, I got the sense, though, from some of the questions that they were asking that they were also thinking of using it as an interrogation tool truth serum oh, essentially right and at the time i was like i was torn because i was like on one level it's like you you guys are devious you've got this hidden agenda and all that <laughs> but then i thought well you know if it could be electrodes to the testicles or some mdma in your water and a beautiful israeli woman comes in to ask you some questions like come on i'll tell you work yeah, it, it might work, work on me. would have worked on me, for sure. <laughs> you know, there's this little, like, urban legend going around that, um, well, it, this part is not legend, but, you know, Tel Aviv is an epicenter for MDMA kind of creation and uh, oh. distribution in that part of the world. Really? There's not too many parts of, in that world can you right. make, manufacture, and distribute drugs. But in Tel Aviv, you can, and supposedly the, there was a huge bump in MDMA production which led to the Arab Spring what we now call the Arab Spring really? which it led to the original like take it to the streets protests in that sense you know what kind of went awry and became the Muslim Brotherhood didn't right. really exactly work out like we all wanted it to but the initial social media and let's take it to the streets and it kind of came from that as a, there was a huge ecstasy kind of dissemination that came from Tel Aviv and made its way into Jordan made its way into Egypt and I don't know if it's true, but it's really cool to think about. MDMA doesn't seem like a revolutionary fuel to me. It, you know what I mean? Because it, it's like... Yeah, but it, it doesn't feel like a revolutionary fuel, but I think it could be the kind of fuel... I mean, look, if you were under, like, the, the, um, the, the thumb of the Taliban or something... You know, and you were taking ecstasy. You know, you might be like, "Oh my gosh! Like, what's what's wrong with them? <laughs> you know, this isn't this isn't working. Yeah. Why do they hate everyone so much?" Yeah, you know, that could be a potential offshoot. I don't. It doesn't really make me want to like, yeah, you know, pull on my boots and go out and protest. Protest. I just want to snuggle. You just want to snuggle. <laughs> <laughs> the snuggle protest. <laughs> but I like the idea. I like that. I don't know if it's true, but I like it. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Well, it would be nice if there if there were a, a substance that we could just put in the water supply that would uh, produce. I mean, in a way, not not to harp on on your father's role in history, but that was sort of like what he was talking about, right? I mean, the turn on, tune in, drop out. You know, if everybody would take acid, the world would be a better place. I know that's oversimplifying. Yeah. Dramatically. No, I, I mean there was a there was a time where you know, there was a time in the 60s where the great promise of the counterculture revolution was, you know, a very, it was a very short window and the great Pandora's box seemed like a perfect yeah. solution to all of our world's problems. But then it, it, he became aware and so did, you know, Richard Alpert and, and Ram, Ram Dass and, you know, all the luminaries of that time that LSD is certainly not a... Um, it's not an escapist drug. Right. Yeah, it's a yeah. confrontational drug. Yeah, people talk about recreational drugs. No. That, that ain't it. That ain't it. Yeah. And, you know, which leads to equals, and which they discovered is it's probably not for everyone. Not yeah. everyone is, is uh, 
it's you know it's an appropriate subject for the set and setting of what acid has to offer. Yeah, that's there was a time sure. when they when they thought it was. All right, so I just paused for a second to readjust the mics there, uh, and <laughs> I asked I asked Zach if there was anything he wanted to cover, and Zach said you're not promoting anything. You, have, mean, I'm not promoting anything. Have you written any books or anything? I have not written any books. I'm don't uh, have an album coming out. No, I'm, I'm working on a book that is uh, slowly in the works, and it's sort of a, it's a book called Who Are You Now: The Fusion of Technology and Spirituality. Wow, that's an interesting subject. Yeah, I, I think so. It's it's really about looking at our the evolution of our species, our species and our culture since pretty much since the American Revolution and how either technology or spirituality has been have been the two primary venues for which we have experienced growth or peril or advancement or de-evolution. Mm. So, I mean, you, you can take something, and by technology, I mean anything from the Industrial Revolution on. It doesn't necessarily mean social media or, right. you know, or Facebook or anything like that. Um, you know, we see great advancements with the way social networking is connecting us and bringing us all closer together. But at the same time, we're also seeing a mutation of younger people and where they cannot stop checking their phones and they've lost a little bit of the humanity within them, pros and cons. And with religion and spirituality, we've seen great awakenings of the heart and, and the spirit through great spiritual paths and whether it's through, you know, yoga, psychedelics or Christian mysticism. I mean, there are amazing seeds that can help us grow and expand and understand uh, each other a lot better. But at the same time, we see a lot of great wars still being fought in God's name. So these two primary venues are, have a lot of intersections within them. And then I kind of take it to all, all the way to the extreme in that I think God is manifesting within technology as we see it now. And that's oh I, boy. <laughs> are, can, can we drill down into that a sure. little bit? So God is manifesting in technology as we see it now. Now has God, has God always been manifesting in technology or just recent technology? Well, that's a great question. One I don't really have, have the answer to, but I would look at it as in terms of recent technology and from the information age on. Information age on, okay. Yeah. So not industrial agriculture or the steam engine or spear points. Yeah, not, not, not as much. Okay, so then, okay, that's interesting because then it sounds like what you're saying is that God is in a sense the hive mind the species level mm, consciousness that arises when many people are, are interconnected simultaneously. Correct. So what is the opposite of, um, it's the opposite of, of Godhead or of God consciousness? It's basically separation. Right, looking isolation. At, isolation, yeah. yeah. Looking at our differences, huh. you know, so we see in today's world in 2016, um, you know, nationalism is as alive and well as it's ever been. You know, nation states thinking that they are better than another nation state, therefore they have the right to do so and so and so and so. Yeah. Religion, you know, and you know, whether you can grab onto theology or, or dogma and just, you know, these constantly finding these illusions of separation. Mm. You know, all these things that divide us, right? So technology has this if you kind of look at what the World Wide Web and its basic fundamental constructs, 
it's about connection and about creating this egalitarian dimension where we can all right. coexist. What are the peer peer networks? Peer networks. Yeah. But you know, the the, the kid in in Rwanda, or Algeria could potentially make you know his website has the same visibility as Zach's does from sure. Santa Monica, California. Right. That is a great revolution. Yeah. Simple now because we're, we're used to it. The novelty is over. So there is a form, I think, of Godhead and connection in that. Right. And breaking down walls and barriers and finding ways for us to understand each other a lot more. Yeah. And that is a, that is a really, really cool thing. Not to mention, so there's that side of it, which is sort of a little bit more of a spiritual side, but on the other, the, the kind of the intellectual mind mapping global village side of it, it's that when you are lost, to me anyway, like when you're lost in a, in a web hole and you know, you started, you search for something and you're clicking and you're clicking and you're clicking and then all of a sudden, two hours later, you're at some far off place and you forgot what you searched for in the first place, right? Big booty Latinas. Big booty Latinas and all of a sudden you're at whatever, you know. No, that's where I end up. Oh, that's where you end up, okay, big booty Latinas. <laughs> it right? doesn't matter where I start. That always leads to the big booty Latinas. You started with Bernie Sanders somehow and ended up with big booty Latinas. <laughs> big bur I'm feeling the burn. I'm feeling the burn. <laughs> but these, um, these, these pathways and these, uh, you know, uh, these, these, they're kind of like neurocausways in which you are experiencing data and, and drilling down to find more information. It's very parallel to, say, the, the, the psychedelic experience, I think. And, um, mm. you know, Godhead and how it can be found within like an ayahuasca experience or an LSD experience is that there is connection here. And sometimes it doesn't quite hook up and you don't find where, how A is connected to B or how Bernie Sanders is connected with Buddha Latinos, but somehow it is. In my head, In it's my a head direct it is. connection, yeah. Well, that, that's, that actually ties in, this line of thinking ties in very much with this book I just sent off to the publisher two weeks ago. Civilized to Death? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I, I um, you know, I was sort of pissing on modernity for uh, 200 pages. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I bought uh, a few books um, you know, to that argue against what I'm saying, and you know, I thought, okay, I'll, you know, I have to respond to the strongest arguments, or at least the most prominent arguments against my interpretation of civilization and history and all that. So, like, I, I you know, there's Steven Pinker and Matt Ridley and mm -hmm. a couple other. Um, Marlene Zook, who wrote um, Paleo Fantasies, and. Anyway, so I you know, argue against those those arguments, and then uh, the, one of the books I got was uh, Future Perfect by Stephen Johnson. Uh, he's a Silicon Valley uh, high tech guru, you know, social media kind of guy, and you know, and I read that, and I, actually I, I picked that book up. It was in my swag bag at TED. We, <laughs> we were talking about swag bags earlier. And I thought, yeah, future perfect. Like, give me a fucking break, you know, gag me with this. And but I read it, and he he spends a lot of time talking about these peer networks. He he um, talked about uh, one of his examples was Kickstarter. Okay. And how within I think three years of launch, Kickstarter was already providing more money to artists than the National Endowment of the Arts. 
and now it's like tripled in the three years after that. It's just wow. the scale is just out of control. And you know, and he talks about the incredible leveraging power of you know the world is full of people who will donate ten bucks to something that they think is cool. Right. Whether and it's not an investment; it's just that's cool. I want to help this yeah, happen. Sure. You know. Right. But there was no way for those people to to contact that pool of potential donors, you know, the the artist or the filmmaker or whatever. And so just by creating this technology, as you say, that where the kid in Bangladesh has the same access as the millionaire in Bel Air, suddenly the world's different. And things that would never have been possible before are now easily doable. Right. If it's a good idea, it's easy to have it spread out, you know, so that, quickly. That, that's right. And we're thinking of, like, you know, the... Uh, largest transportation company in America right now doesn't own a single vehicle. Uber, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that, and yeah. it didn't exist five years. It didn't ago. exist five years. So ago. I mean, you know, you said, oh, it's it's you know, we're used to it now, but uh, and and I see what well, you mean, but we're still in the very early days. We're in the earliest days, man. Yeah. And and I know, like, you've spent a lot of your 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 time and your career being sort of anti-modernity and you know, kind of going back to our our tribal roots and our hunter-gatherer roots, which I, I do get, but I think the the mutation, I don't think any of us, you and I specifically, either of us are going to live long enough to see the mutation fully happen in the, in the utopian sense. And I, I remain an optimist. I have to remain an optimist. I just choose to take, take that road. And I do think there is going to be some sort of utopian panacea that's going to be a result of us inventing our way out of this fucking mess. Well, that's fu- I, that's you funny. Know? When you said, you know, I choose to be an optimist. I, I used to choose to be an optimist uh, because... <laughs> Don't Donald know. Trump's man for president. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, I, you know, when I was young, I was sort of dour and, you know, I read too much Russian literature as a teenager <laughs> or something. Um, and then, you know, I went off and hit my 20s and I was traveling around the world and doing yoga and getting laid more and seeing a lot of sunsets. And then it was like, the world's beautiful. I love it. Everything's wonderful. And, you know, I just want to be with positive people doing positive things. Um, and now I'm sort of in a middle, a middle zone where um, I remember reading, you ever read... Um, uh, Choyum Trungpa, sure. the yeah, Shambhala. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So some, I think it's in that book where he says, um, he says people in the West have this mistaken understanding of what uh, enlightenment is or nirvana. You know, they they think it's the state of endless happiness, yeah. but it's not. It's a state of balance. Absolutely. And it's it's a place where no matter how good things are going for you, you never forget the suffering of those around you. Yes. And no matter how shitty things are going for you, you never forget the beauty of what's around you. That's it, you know? So I'm not not to say that I'm becoming a Tibetan, you know, enlightened being or anything, but <laughs> that's exactly it though, man. And like I you know what my, my pet peeve of the new age community is is yeah. that like the the process of kind of taking the um, uh, the law of attraction too far is right. that oh it's it's all good it's all good I just I need to surround myself with yeah. positive people and right thinking and drink my green juice and do my yoga right. and the world is this beautiful magical serene place all yeah. of the time I think that's bullshit it's an abandonment it's an of abandonment thinking. of what's real yeah it's an abandonment of what's real not yeah. only thinking but like yeah. the real like 
I, I, and, and I exist in this community and, and you know, in a lot of ways. I have both feet in it. But, like, I cannot stand when a new ager comes up to me and tells me they don't watch the news because I don't want to surround myself with that, with that way of thinking. And sure, I intellectually get that, but to ignore that, it's just you're ignoring your surroundings. You're ignoring your brothers and sisters yeah. who are suffering. Yeah, I mean, you can, you, know? you can watch the news or read the newspaper or whatever with an understanding that you're getting a version of world yes. events that's yes. driven by economics and driven by all sorts of things. Right. But that's, I think that's the third phase, right? There's the yes, there's the no, and there's the yes, but. Right. You know, and I think yes, but is the mature, that, that's where you get when you grow up. Exactly. You know? And you said it all. As long as you have that sense of obje- objectivity where you can say, okay, this is a version that's being broadcasted to me. Right. I don't need to believe it all, but I could still take the information from it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, where I was going with that whole future perfect yeah. thing is... The book actually really impressed me, and I ended up uh, writing the, the later chap- latter chapters of uh, Civilized to Death are sort of going down the road you're going, where I it led me to think about systems theory, mm-hmm. and uh, what's his name, Riley? I don't forget his first name. He's a polymath, one of the early uh, people in the um, internet technology field. Um, and I and I started thinking about how um, different uh, how can I say it different like um, dimension of organism right because I was thinking um, you know you and I consider ourselves to be individuals but we are actually communities yeah. of organisms and you know if you remove the liquid from my body and just measure the dry mass more than half of it doesn't have my DNA. Uh, it's microbes in my intestines and on my skin and in my blood. And there's all this stuff in us that isn't us, DNA-wise, if that's how we're measuring identity. And yet we couldn't exist without it. So you are a system. I am a system. And then we say, okay, well, then we comprise systems as well. And we look at corporations and religions and countries and all these things, these institutions. And so I started thinking of them as organisms. Okay. And then it occurred to me, like, we spend all this time worrying about computers getting so smart they take over the world or aliens coming from out of space and, you know, some alien life form enslaving us. Hmm. I look at the world now and I say, it's already happened. Mm Mm-hmm. It's happened. We just don't see it. It's right in front of us. Yeah. You know, these, these discussions of, you know, corporations are people, my friend. Well, they're not people, but they have legal rights and they have more power than we do. And we live within them the way microorganisms live within our guts. That's right. And we're enslaved by them. And those things don't give a fuck about you and me. They don't give a fuck if you're happy or healthy. They just give a fuck if their whirlpool keeps spinning faster and faster, right? It's profit. And, right. and so when people say, well, but good people work at Exxon, doesn't matter. Because those good people <laughs> could say, you know what, we're going to stop drilling in deep water because the technology, honestly, we can't guarantee we're not going to fuck up the world. And they'd get fired in 24 hours. Right. Right. So it doesn't matter if good people work there. They are an alien life force. And I think we're at the point, and maybe this ties in with what you're doing in this book, I think we're at a point where we are in a swarm. Civilization is a human swarm. and But because of the internet, for the first time, 
it's possible for our species to see what's happening hmm. on the large scale. Yeah. Like a salmon in a school that's headed toward the nets. Some of those salmon, for the first time ever, are able to sort of step back and look at it from like a helicopter and say, wait a minute, right. we're schooling and those nets are right in front of us. Let's slow down and rethink this. Yes. So, so that's where I come out. And, you know, my whole like prehistoric thing is not about we need to abandon civilization and go back to hunting and gathering. Right. My thing is that we need to design our future with an understanding of the environment that created us. That's, yes, and designing better systems. Exactly. We're going to live yes. in an artificial environment. We're going to live in a zoo. Right. Don't we want to be in the fucking San Diego Zoo? Right. Not the Calcutta Zoo? Right. Right? Yeah. So that's where I'm trying to go. I'm not denying movement toward the future. Mm -hmm. I just want to turn downstream and avoid the rocks, you right. know? I'm absolutely with you. And this is why, you know, people, to me, people like... Um, Elon Musk, for instance, he's right. a really great mainstream low-hanging fruit example to me. Yeah, is that he's able to, you know, survey the landscape and say, "Huh, well, I can exist in both worlds here. I can create new systems, make a shit ton of money, but also provide a service that is disruptive enough to change, you know, the very, you know, um, uh, onerous." systems that have that have ruled that have defined that are kind of left over from the industrial age yeah and the agri agrarian age but you know really since they were still behaving in that model and you know the tricky part of it though is that and i love you know getting into this with people uh, you know all the time is that it's a funny balance because it's it's this give and take it's this participation yet this rebellion this participation that yet there's there's this rebellion yes we can be those salmon swimming upstream and take the helicopter and have the bird's eye view and go, oh, wait a second, maybe we can redefine the path that we're swimming in. But at the same time, and this is why, you know, on a very basic level, I always want people in, in America to get out and vote. It's because everybody's still complicit. Right. You're still complicit in this giant machine that is encaging you into the zoo. Well, yes, it could be a San Diego zoo, but, you know, if you have your money in a, in a mainstream bank, if you drive a car that consumes gasoline, you know, I mean, if you buy plastics, I mean, whatever. It if you is. have kids. If you have kids, I mean, it's really almost impossible to live entirely off the grid yeah. without influencing any of this giant, you know, oligarchy that's influencing us. But there is a way to sort of also dance within it to change, to change it. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's where the promise lies. Yeah, I think you're right about Elon Musk, by the way. Yeah, he's I, great. He's, he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he's disruptive. He's the very definition of being disruptive. He's saying, look, I, I can do this. And you can, you can see that he's for real when he does something like uh, makes all the, the, the design software and, and uh, the, I don't remember, with the files yeah. for the Tesla cars publicly available. Yeah. To, to, like Toyota can copy them if they want, you know. He made it open source. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's that's you know balls to the wall real. He he built a fucking rocket company. Yeah. So why isn't NASA going to Mars? I don't understand this. You know, that's how he started SpaceX. Was he was looking for information on NASA's program for going to Mars? Yeah. And he went to the website and dug and dug <laughs> and said there was no public. What's going on? We're not going to Mars. Yeah. And he built SpaceX, and now NASA's going to Mars as a response. I yeah. Mean, the the one area. 
area where I disagree with him, and and this is presumptuous as fuck because he's ten times smarter than me, but (laughs) the one area where I I disagree with his vision is in space exploration. Oh, okay. Why is that? Because I feel like the frontier for our species is internal. It's getting our shit together. Going within. Going within and, and also on the planet, like dealing with each other, okay. right? Like as long as Jews and Pac- and Palestinians are shooting each other, you know, like <laughs> Mars can fucking wait. Let's okay. deal with shit here, right? Oh, okay. All right, and um, and our economic system is atrocious. It's it's ridiculous. Um, you know the 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 war industrial culture. I mean, we've got so it's so fucked up. The way we're living and the way we're treating each other. Yes. Um, that I really think that we're much better off saying, you know what? Yeah, we could do that, but let's let's deal with what's going on right here. And um, one of the things that he and uh, Bill Gates and other people are really well, that's that's another issue. I was going to talk about artificial intelligence, but do you know about the what's it called the um, the Fermi paradox? Sure. Right. Yeah. So the yeah. Fermi paradox is if we know that there are an infinite number of stars and a certain percentage of those stars have planets, and so a certain number of those planets are going to be at a distance from the star that puts them in a temperature range that's potentially. Um, uh, good for life to, to develop. So you do the math and there should be, I don't know, millions or billions of, of, of planets that, yep. that could have uh, given rise to life. And yet we look out into the stars with the greatest technology we have and we see no indication of anyone anywhere. So, so yeah, so far. So what these guys say is, and, and Elon Musk has said this, is that it's because, probably because they reach a certain technological level and blow themselves up. So there's just like, that's what happens. There's sort of like a, a, a terminal life cycle for life itself, that it reaches a certain capacity that it then inevitably uses to destroy itself. Sort of like the Kurt Vonnegut, uh, you know, in his latter years, Kurt Vonnegut was all about like, well, we're the virus. Yeah. We're essentially a virus by definition. Right. You know, we, well, and you look at the way we treat the planet. Yeah. We you use know. up all our natural resources, go from one pool exactly. to another, expand, expand, expand. Expand, Eventually, expand. we're going to implode. Right. So that's why I say the frontier is population control. The frontier is yeah. we, we incentivize people not to have kids by removing the financial insecurity that right. leads most people in the third world to have kids. Yeah, I know. We were talking about this on my podcast, too, and it had me thinking a lot about the, the population control issue. And yeah, there's no question. There's no way around that. You know, I don't really think there is a there's an ethical solution to it. Um, but at the same time, there's no logical solution, or there's no logical explanation around it. The, yeah, it's it's <laughs> the thing that blocks us from from progressing as as a yes. species. Right. And so I think that the and tying this into the Fermi paradox, mm-hmm. I think that what the reason there's nothing out there is yes, some blow themselves up, but I think others reach the point, which is pretty much where we are right now. They reach this point and then they say, we've got what we need. Mm. There's nothing out there that's better than what we've got right here. What we need to do Mm. is stop burning shit, 
use the energy in these waves, use the energy from the sun. We've got the technology to live beautifully. Yes, we do. And we can continue scientific development, continue research, continue all sorts of interesting shit. It's not about stopping, but there's no reason to go to Mars. We can do all sorts of interesting shit here and live peacefully with uh, you know yeah. a billion people on the planet yeah I don't know man I, I see I see both sides because I do think there is something within us like actually I don't quote my dad too often but he had this great uh, part of his later 70s work when he was really gotten to the whole futurism trip was um, smile space migration intelligence squared life extension is that the sense that you know, somebody could tell us, right, can sit right here, and you and I don't agree, but can tell us, what, what, why do you need to take psychedelics? Everything you need to see the world is right here. Why do you need to expand your periphery vision and ex increase your frequency range? Right. Why not just go within? Everything's right here. Do yoga, meditate. And the answer for why to do psychedelics has been said many times before. We already know the answer to that. So I can see the same thing, and I would put the same... Um, philosophy and sort of the same logic out to, to space migration in that we are I mean this is super woo woo man but we are we are stardust we are made <laughs> of that same shit man let's go out and see it like earth is not it I understand and I agree on a very pragmatic level like we need to fucking fix earth first yeah. yes i do of course I, I agree with that i mean who wouldn't and i don't want to like bail to mars and in, in this in under this in the spirit of like oh god this place is fucked get me to mars yeah yes we got to fix our home planet first but at the same you know i don't know if if, if this is within our our dna with if this is all of the human story has to offer i think we're meant to explore I, I agree. I think we're meant to explore. I agree. We're meant to explore. We're we're curious. We're you know? curious. Um, but we, we've never stopped, man. We've never stopped. Just as yeah. we left the cave and started going over to the next cave and going to over crossing the mountain range, crossing the ocean. Yeah, but that's we, that's only the sort of most you know obvious manifestation of exploration, right? Because we're right. talking about psychedelics. That's exploration. Yes, it is. We're talking about meditation. We're talking about, you know, John Lilly and his... Uh, flotation uh, tanks. Yeah, flotation yeah. tanks. You know, scuba diving. Uh, there, there are a million ways to explore that don't involve, you know, building a rocket and going to the moon or Mars or whatever. Right. So I, I'm not talking about ceasing exploration. Um, but there's, there's a beautiful line from a T.S. Eliot poem the, in the Four Quartets. He says, the end of all our exploration will be to return to where we began and know the place for the first time. Uh, yes. And that's, that's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling like this has all been leading up to this moment, this historical moment in a way. This this is the optimistic vision, mm -hmm. you know. Unlike you, I haven't chosen to be an optimist, but <laughs> I've, I have chosen to <laughs> to entertain an optimistic uh, conclusion to you know the history of our species. Yeah. And I think that vision says to me, okay, all of this has led to this moment where we. How, like I said, you know, the salmon that can look at the school in its entirety and see where we're going. And so now we have this this species planetary brain that can we can all communicate and nobody can stop us. Yes. Podcasts like this goes all over the world. Over Anyone the world. can listen to it. So for the first time, we can talk to each other directly. Right. Yes. And hopefully that gives us, the, the microbes within the organism, power 
to say, fuck this organism, right? <laughs> Let's stop. We're going to stop acting like a virus now. We're going to stop the, the mutation, the cancerous growth, because we're going to kill the host. We're going to kill the host. You know, so if yeah. the virus can see that it's killing the host, maybe the virus mutates in a way that then doesn't kill the host. Well, that's that's the goal. That's let's, the idea. Let's get symbiotic pitches. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. And I, and I yeah. do think we are living in an age now to where on, on a very big sort of macro level, a lot of these discussions are happening in the forefront. They're happening in the mainstream. Yeah. Which is, I mean, maybe yeah. nothing is fully being done yet, but the conversations are being had. Yeah. You know, even on like on the political level, like the shit that Bernie Sanders is saying in a nationally televised debate, yeah. even if he doesn't win the, the nomination, which right. he might not, at least he's fucking saying it. Yeah. Like that last debate where he was talking about, look, this game is rigged. This woman over here is sponsored by J.P. Morgan Chase. He said it. He said the words. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. Even if she yeah. wins, which she probably will, that's still a really big change, and in, in in, it's a paradigm shift. Well, a dude, you know? a dude who calls himself a Democrat socialist, yeah, right. is running for president, and people are taking him seriously. I mean, the discontent with the system is so extreme. Well, and of course, that's why Donald that's Trump Donald exists Trump as well. On the yeah. other side, yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's my hope is that, you know, through this sort of information technology, and it doesn't seem to be happening, but it, it feels to me like, you know, the, the libertarian, right wing, don't trust government, they're the natural allies of, of the Bernie Sanders voters. Yes. You know? Yeah. Because... Yeah, it does. It isn't working. It, it, Definitely, we all agree with that. Have you heard uh, before? I wanted to say it before I forgot. Have you heard Duncan Trussell's thing about the population control? No. Oh man, you got to ask him. He's obviously a lot funnier than I am, but he has this really funny idea. It's like there's this great way for uh, to conduct population control within within the, the civilized world, and that is you could offer people to come in and get sterilized and in exchange they get um a lifelong gift card for best buy or walmart yeah well that's essentially what i'm saying incentivize it (laughs) right i mean i'm talking about uh minimum what's it called the minimum uh, dignified income or whatever where like okay you know they're doing it in some places in europe everybody alive gets a thousand bucks a month just for being alive. Just for being alive. Okay. Right. Right. So there's no welfare. There's no, you got to apply for this or that. You, you you're alive. It. You get a thousand bucks. Awesome. Right. right. You want to go work and make more? Go ahead. You don't want to? That's your choice. Whatever. But here's, if you ne- if you don't have kids and you're over 18 years of age, you get 1,500 bucks. Wow. As long as you don't have kids, you get another 500 bucks a month. If you, have, if you want to have a kid, go ahead, have a kid. But then you, then you're down to a thousand. How many people would take? So many people would take that. Fuck. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> right. Because it does, it does two things. It incentivizes not having kids, and it removes the financial incentive to have kids. Oh, right. Right. Which is how it stands. They're going to take care of you when you're old. No, you don't need it. The the state will take care of you when you're old. We pass out a thousand bucks a person forever. I like it. I mean, interesting. So that's why ethically, you know, you're not coercing anybody. You're not, it's not like the China one child policy or some shit like that. It's just, yeah. Here's your option. Here's your option. Take it or leave it. Go for it. Right. You know who Edward Abbey was? No. He he wrote um, a book called Desert Solitaire that was this underground cult classic. Really interesting writer. He was um, sort of like an intellectual redneck hippie. 
if you can imagine. Sure. Yeah. Sort of like I know a couple of those. John Perry Barlow is kind yeah, of like, yeah, that kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He had that big ranch up in Utah or somewhere. Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Do you know Tal Ruspoli? Yeah. Oh, that's right. We talked yeah, about yeah. him. I was with him last night. Yeah. He's, oh, cool. He's good friends with John Perry Barlow. Yeah, yeah. I am. I know Barlow through, um, well, through my dad, but through the Grateful Dead connection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For sure. But yeah, actually, after you left my house that day, I wrote Tal and asked him to come on the podcast when the movie is ramping up. Yeah, yeah. Good. Cool. Good. The monogamish. Monogamish. Yeah. 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 I saw the new version last night. He changed it. I don't okay. know if you've seen any I drafts. I haven't. Okay, I got to go over and watch it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we can talk about that later. But okay. anyway, the Edward Abbey thing. He um, so he wrote Desert Solitaire, beautiful book about. He lived in Moab and worked uh, for three years as a ranger, or, you know, out in the desert. So it's about the desert and the characters and the nature. It's just a beautiful meditation on on that whole scene there and then um, he wrote a book called The Monkey Wrench Gang oh sure yeah, yeah. which started Earth First right you know the sort of eco-terrorist movement um, but he had this thing where he was, he said uh, you know here's how you solve the immigration problem the illegal immigration problem you meet them meet the Mexicans at the border uh, you offer offer the women a thousand dollars to get sterilized <laughs> take it or leave it and the men, you give them a rifle and you send them home. <laughs> That'll solve your problem. That'll work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was, he was an interesting guy, old Ed Abbey. I'll have to check that out. So how, how I mean, your, your life is so interesting. I interviewed um, uh, Kelly Carlin a couple oh, cool. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. George Carlin's daughter. daughter, yeah. Have you met her? I um. Not to my knowledge, but I met George a couple of times. Back oh, in the you met day. George? Wow. Yeah, so maybe I did. So, what was yeah. that like? I mean, you were you were this kid, sort of in the center of the cyclone. You know, <laughs> there was this storm going around. Yeah. I mean, did you travel with your dad? She talks about she went on tour with with George. Yeah, like I never went on tour with him, um, uh, but I did travel a lot. Yeah, we went to some great places together. Um, I mean, you know, throughout the 80s and the early part of the 90s, I mean, the primary bulk of his work and income was based off the college lecture circuit. I mean, that's that's just what he did. Yeah. He'd go do kind of a string of seven to eight dates, seven to ten dates kind of at once and come back and, you know, go off and do it again, very much kind of like a rock and roll band. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, being in the center of the cyclone and it's a tough question to answer because it's only through distance that you're able to get perspective. Yeah. Like, as it's happening, especially when I was younger, people would ask me all the time, but I really, there's no frame of reference. Yeah, it's, it's just your childhood. It's just my childhood. Yeah. It's just my life. And I was just, I don't know. Is this cool? Is this different? I don't know. It's just what I know. <laughs> yeah. Later on. Kids have no idea. Kids have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> but later on, sure, of course, yeah. I gained some perspective. And I was like, hey, this, this, that was pretty cool. Yeah, you were essentially living history in in some sense, and I mean, you yeah. were witnessing all sorts of history. I imagine you met a lot of people that everyone's heard of. Yeah, I mean, did you ever meet the Beatles? Or I met a couple Beatles. Yeah, <laughs> a couple no, Beatles. nothing like meeting a Beatle. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's about the, and yeah, of all the people that I met, it was the musicians for me. Yeah, I mean, actors and right. even uh, intellectual luminaries, and you know that's cool. But meeting meeting the Beatles or you know, meaning. And was they, it cool? Did they just treat you like a friend's kid, or, yeah, or was totally. it completely the coolest thing ever? You know, I mean, and still, uh, it's not like I'm, I'm 
buddies with Ringo, but on the occasion where I do see him, it's the coolest thing in the whole world. Right. You know? And I'm still as starstruck as a 14-year-old boy today really? as I was. Absolutely. I mean, music to me is the, yeah. you know, that's the ingredient that changed my life, you know. It is one of, it, it, it's an amazing mystery that, that we treat as if it were normal music. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's this, it's like, it's like ghosts that just walk through our house and we're like, oh yeah, that's the ghost, you know, <laughs> just turn on the radio and this stuff comes out of it that can change the way I feel, that can remind me of periods of life like nothing else, that, that can convey complex emotions that we don't even really have words for, but every time you hear the song, you get that same and it shapes who you are. It really does. You know, yeah. there's a great video. I, it was a Pitchfork, uh, Pitchfork.com, the, the music rag. Uh, they did this great interview with Nick Cave uh, a few years back, and it's really fantastic for anybody who considers himself to be a muso or a muso geek. He describes, and you know, Nick Cave is extremely literate. You know, he's written a book, and he's very, you know, scholarly literate guy. But he goes on this whole kind of rant about how he thanks his dad for giving him the gift of music because it's really music that shaped who he was. Like, had he not read Hemingway or Shakespeare, sure, you know, life might not have been as rich and as colorful, right. but he would have been a very different person had he not discovered Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan or Nina Simone, and mm. that's who shaped who he is, right. you know, more than anything. And same for me, you know, it's Pink Floyd, The Grateful Dead, and David Bowie, and they had this big epiphany when Bowie died a couple weeks ago. Because Bowie was my mom's favorite mm. artist, and I just was like, "Oh my gosh, I just can't believe how much Bowie influenced my life." Yeah, I you know? for me it was I, definitely I share Pink Floyd with you. That was huge. Yeah, definitely. you know, and I think the fact that I listened to a lot of Pink Floyd when I was coming down from acid trips, ah. you know, <laughs> potentiated their influence. <laughs> you know, because yeah, I was course. really listening closely. Uh, yeah, did you? <laughs> I don't know if this is too personal a question, but did you ever have like a a go-to album or, or artist that you would sort of use when you were coming down to earth? I don't know about coming down. I mean, I definitely am my go-to artist for the trip itself. Ah, okay. You know? Yeah. Uh, and coming down, well... You know, I started getting into um, ambient music uh, really early on in my psychedelic world. So, like, early Brian Eno. Right. Or, you know, early Aphex Twin kind of stuff. My Life in the Bushes. What was that called? That uh, Brian Eno and David Byrne did uh, my, a... Yeah. Um, God, I forgot what it's called. My Life yeah. in the Time of Bushes or something like that. Yeah. Right. Have you ever listened to um, Bill Laswell? Oh, sure. I love Bill Laswell. Oh, I love him, too. Man. Such good stuff. Fantastic. All the Axiom records. Yeah. Yeah. So good, groovy, funky, and I'm a bass jungle. Player too. Oh, you and play bass? Sorry, bass yeah, yeah. Material, the yeah, material. material. Yeah. So good, yeah, yeah. He, he, have you heard Imaginary Cuba? No, he yeah. did. Um, I think it's later. I think it's after the Axiom stuff. Uh, but he um, did. Uh, he went to Cuba and just did field recordings. Oh, cool. So like outside a church or people just playing on the beach or whatever, and then he went home and you know remixed everything as he does. And oh, I love that. You know, laid a bass track down, and it's just fantastic. So you just listen to it, and you're just traveling. You know, it's it's just he's he's brilliant. I love his stuff. And uh, the, the where he remixed Marley, oh, yeah. Dreams of Freedom, so great. 
Yeah, really good. That stuff. Yeah, I listened to, um, do you know Pat Metheny, the sure. jazz guitar? Guitar player, you bet, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of his stuff is kind of like super commercial and weird, but yeah. um, he has a record called As Falls Wichita, So Falls Wichita. That was my coming down to earth okay. album that yeah. just relaxed. It was the perfect amount of like enough that it was interesting to listen to and right. absorbing but, but soft it, enough yeah, to take you home exactly yeah now i would now that you think about it like uh you know um, in a silent way by miles davis oh that's great you yeah know, kind of stuff like that that could be a very good kind of second chapter after the yeah. fireworks were right. over right it's like a, it's like a light massage ah, come back down. there's a sure. great soundtrack i should hook you up with if you haven't heard it and very few people know about this from a film called siesta mm, don't know it it was toward the end of Miles Davis's life. Uh, it was Miles Davis and Marcus Miller. Okay, the bass player, yeah. And it, it's a film, it's this crazy film that, star, I mean, you, no one's ever heard of it. It's, it was released, and then a week later it was gone, disappeared in the 80s. I happened to catch it. I was living in Manhattan at the time. I happened to catch it, and it blew my fucking mind. But I think it was just too bizarre for people. It was like David Lynch on acid. You know, it was just like crazy. But I mean, check it out. It was starring um, uh, Isabella Rossellini, okay. uh, Gabriel Byrne, um, Sheen, Martin Sheen. Wow. Uh, oh, man. I mean, I could name uh, Jodie Foster. Like this stellar cast and the soundtrack Marcus Miller Miles Davis oh. incredible um, so ch- check it out if you, if you can't okay. find it I'll, I'll, I'll record it for it. you Siesta yes yeah, Siesta okay. and it's it's essentially a remake a funky well not a remake but it's it's it references um, what's the Miles Davis uh, Spanish record the um, with with Bill Evans um Sketches of Spain. Sketches of Spain, exactly. So it takes a lot of the themes from such sketches of Spain, but sort of funkier and groovier. And Uh, yeah. Cool, I'll check it out. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, listen, I know you've got a role. I don't know what time it is, but you've got something. Yeah, about time for a. About time to roll? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming over, man. Let's, uh, we should get together. You know, I'm I'm doing a podcast now because I like to play music and it's. People ask for more, but I'm leery. Of, yeah, no leery. Sorry, <laughs> I'm uh, wary about using uh, you know a lot of music. So I've I've started a second podcast called Singing Out My Ass, awesome. the Soma the Soma series, yeah. which is just music. It's just I talk about like why I love this music and play a song. Oh, cool. Then, yeah, I saw a little on your website. I wasn't sure how it fit in. Yeah. yeah well, cool. I started. What happened was like I get in these conversations with people and I launch into some story about when I was traveling mm-hmm. and people are like. You you know, tell more of those stories, but I don't like inviting you over and then I sit here and talk for 20 minutes. Right. You know, that doesn't <laughs> seem right. So I started a second thing called Talking Out My Ass. Okay. Toma. Toma. That's the Toma. Okay. And uh, so that's separate, just telling travel stories. And then I started the Soma. So I don't know. It's cool. It's an expanding media empire. I love it. <laughs> Chris Ryan Inc. Yeah. But we should uh, sometime we should get together and talk about music. I'd love to, man. Yeah. Because I feel like we hit that late. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot there. I'll bring my uh, some talking points for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right, cool. Thanks, Chris. This is really fun. Yeah. I can't find the button.
I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, you don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osman, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at shoredesigntshirts.com. And of course, all the shirts that are at chrisryanphd.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big if you want to be free, say what you want to feel. 
spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 